Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello history friend and welcome to this series looking at the Trent Affair. This is episode 4 and in the last episode we looked at the war plans that the British had to literally invade the United States in the event of the Third Anglo-American War in less than a century. Pretty interesting stuff I'm sure we'll all agree but the crisis did not sit still. Plans were one thing but how to deal with the passage of time and how to deal with the passage of certain members of the royal family back in Britain. That's what we're going to look at today. So without any further ado, let's get into this. I'll take you to the middle of December 1861. At 10.50pm on the 14th of December 1861, surrounded by Queen Victoria and five of their nine children, Albert, the prince consort, died of typhus. It has since been suggested that Crohn's disease, kidney failure and even stomach cancer were to blame for his death, but either way, the prince consort had not been himself for some time. In his last act of political significance, Albert had intervened in the Trent dispute. Albert's intention was to provide the Americans with a face-saving bridge in the form of a statement to the effect that Lieutenant Wilkes had acted without Washington's knowledge. This assumption was generously maintained by Russell and Palmerston, and it represents Albert's final diplomatic gift. Although he had been by the Queen's side for over 20 years, Albert was just 41 years old. Predictably, the Queen was utterly distraught. With some exceptions, Queen Victoria remained clad in black for the rest of her life. She also did her level best to avoid any official business, and ministers were expected to refrain from bothering her, unless it was absolutely urgent. Even while wearing their mourning clothes, Palmerston's government could not afford to stand still. The vessel carrying the ultimatum to the United States on the 2nd of December would soon make landfall. Thanks to the restrictions imposed by communication, Anglo-American diplomacy was forced to wait for long stretches in anticipation of answers, and this explains how it wasn't until Friday, the 13th of December, that the Americans were actually informed of British outrage over the Trent Affair, as the collection of British newspapers and articles relevant to the crisis arrived alongside the ultimatum. The historian David Paul Crook wrote that it led to the most anxious Christmas season in living memory for the Americans. All of a sudden, 
Due to a controversial confrontation at sea, which many do not fully understand, a new Anglo-American war at such a terrifying moment of national vulnerability seemed definitely possible. The British newspaper hall that arrived in America was awash with reports of soldiers arriving to bulk up the Canadian defences and of reinforcements seen cruising to bulk up Milne's North American Naval Squadron. The impact on the public and private interests of the United States was shocking and immediate. As was usual in these circumstances, panic became a self-fulfilling prophecy. An augur of tense times, the New York Stock Exchange fluttered anxiously. On the Monday morning of the 16th of December, having had the previous weekend to digest the worrying news, investors dumped their bonds and rushed to buy commodities such as gold, saltpetre and gunpowder. A run on the banks occurred, suspending all forms of business. The most significant casualty included the payment of a loan to the Treasury, which had been eagerly expected for mid-December. The New York offices of Barings and the Rothschilds closed their doors, and the Rothschilds even went so far as to transfer their American holdings to France, in case the United States government intended to confiscate them in the midst of a national emergency. The price of imports and of war materials particularly ballooned, while the sale of cotton was halted completely. Businesses were advised not to use American vessels when transporting their goods, causing insurance costs to also spike in price. These casualties of war do not typically feature on the statistics of a regular conflict, but they cast a cloud of gloom over the United States as the nation faced into its first holiday period as a bitterly divided nation. Due to the circumstances of its strategic position, if nothing else, American newspapers were, in the majority, in favour of peace and of giving compensation to the British. The New York Times captured the dilemma when on the 14th of December it noted that To plunge into a war with England now would be simply to give the army and the navy of England to the support of the rebel cause. That being said, while war with Britain was feared, the act of giving those arrested commissioners back to the British was resisted, at least for a few days. When he appeared at a party hosted by the Portuguese legation on the 15th of December, Seward claimed that in the event England decided upon war, we will wrap the whole world in flames. Among those present for this troubling declaration was a man by the name of William Russell, who was the Times' Washington correspondent. But another guest told the frazzled Russell not to take the American Secretary of State too seriously, remarking, That's all bugaboo talk. When Seward talks that way, he means to break down. He is most dangerous and obstinate when he pretends to agree a good deal with you. American political dynasties, such as the Adams family, also tended to view the crisis in more sanguine terms. Henry Adams, the son and secretary to the American ambassador to Britain, Charles Francis Adams Sr., did not mince his words. What a bloody set of fools they are! How in the name of all that's conceivable could you suppose that England would sit quiet under such an insult? We should have jumped out of our boots at such a one. To his brother, Henry Adams complained that the United States had gone the way of England and had adopted its controversial search policies without shame or consideration. 
Good God, what's gotten into you all? What in hell do you mean by deserting now the great principles of our fathers, by returning to the vomit of that dog Great Britain? What do you mean by asserting now principles against which every Adams yet has protested and resisted? You're mad, all of you. Thanks to the delay in Atlantic communications, Henry Adams's father rested on tender hooks in anticipation of the American response. And since Ambassador Adams couldn't know for certain how his countrymen would respond to the British ultimatum, the ambassador's mood took a gloomy turn, and in the week before Christmas, while in London, he began to see war as imminent. Where is the master to direct this storm? Ambassador Adams lamented. Is it Lord Palmerston or Earl Russell? Although it was a source of relief that Lincoln's administration had not authorised Wilkes's actions, Mason and Slidell had not yet been released, and Britain's uncompromising stance made it plain that only by admitting its error could the United States avoid war. Ambassador Adams did not care for such qualities as honour in this case. Washington must disavow Wilkes's behaviour in a public manner, and it must release the commissioners immediately. I would part with them at a cent apiece, Adams declared. The combination of British bitterness mixed with the tension caused by the ongoing blockade of Confederate ports and the economic problems this was causing in cotton-producing regions such as Lancashire in Britain seemed to highlight the Trent Affair as the ideal pretext for righting these wrongs and fulfilling the American nightmare with a third Anglo-American war. But while Adams would have to withstand these anxious signs, The situation in the United States was ever so gradually shifting in the direction of peace. Interestingly, the narrative began to change, thanks largely to a Confederate own goal. Editorials appeared in Southern papers which remarked on the incredible follies of the United States during the course of the Trent Affair. These commentaries were reprinted in American papers in the North, and it became apparent that for the United States to escalate the Trent situation into a war with Britain would simply mean playing into the Confederacy's condescending hands. This, in turn, granted Lincoln's administration a convenient escape route from the crisis. Now, if the United States bowed to British demands, she would not be meekly surrendering, she would be undermining a Confederate scheme to entrap Britain and the United States in a ruinous war. On the 18th of December, the shift in mood was again captured by the New York Times, which remarked that the war fever over the Trent originated in Washington thanks to the machinations and schemes of Confederate sympathisers. Lincoln's administration was said to be probably satisfied that this had been the case. Perhaps the implications of a foreign war had helped to sober some of the more dangerous provocateurs in the United States. Although the shift in mood was far from quick or complete, it was sufficient to place a new interpretation on matters. And this was just as well, because the next chapter in the crisis was soon to unfold. After many days of waiting, Britain's ultimatum finally arrived in the United States. It was placed in Ambassador Lord Lyon's hands just shortly before midnight on the 18th of December. The following day, it was certain, Ambassador Lyons would deliver the ultimatum to the Secretary of State and the clock, counting down to the seven-day deadline, would begin ticking. But then again, perhaps the days that their messenger had been at sea had granted Palmerston's administration pause for thought. 
From the beginning, once the initial anger died down, Earl Russell, the Foreign Secretary, had been eager not to pile humiliation on the Americans and to make a retreat as easy and palatable as possible for the Americans to stomach. By the 16th of December, Russell had even decided that any American difficulties over the reply to the ultimatum would not automatically lead to war, as Russell said to Palmerston. I incline more and more to the opinion that if the American answer is a reasoning and not a blunt offensive answer, we should send once more across the Atlantic to ask compliance. I do not think the country would approve an immediate declaration of war. This mood, on Russell's part, was reflected in the British ambassador in Washington, Lord Lyons, and his behaviour. When Secretary of State Seward was informed that the British ambassador wished to see him, Seward was likely eager to learn of the official British response. The same vessel which had delivered the ultimatum had also delivered messages from America's ambassador in London, Charles Francis Adams. The Adams were very much an American political dynasty, and Charles Francis Adams had been the grandson of President John Quincy Adams. But even Ambassador Adams's acute political antenna had been seriously challenged. Unfortunately for the beleaguered ambassador, he was left in the dark both by Washington and by London, and his messages back to Washington could give little insight to Seward on the current mood in Palmerston's administration. This did not stop a huge packet of Adams's dispatches weighing in excess of a hundred pounds from arriving on Seward's desk. Much of it was later found to be of little use. Much like his masters in Washington, Ambassador Adams was forced to wait upon events, even as the crisis seemed to intensify. For these reasons, it's fair to say that Secretary of State Seward had little idea of what he would be up against when he met with Lord Lyons, though he had been fed on a steady diet of whisper and rumour since the 13th of December. Seward's meeting consisted both of good news and bad news. To cover the bad news first... The United States' worst fears were confirmed by the British ambassador. Britain did expect significant reparation for the Trent Affair, including immediate delivery of the imprisoned commissioners into British custody and a suitable apology for the grievance. Lord Lyons could then have landed the bomb that the Americans had a week to give their reply or else, but he didn't do that. Instead, the meeting between the two men had been carefully planned. Rather than hand the Secretary of State the ultimatum and tell him that it was starting to tick down from now, Lyons instead informed Seward, unofficially and informally, as he put it, what the ultimatum contained, and he even gave him a copy of it. The strictest secrecy would help protect this courtesy, which, if word got out, could look like Britain being gentle with matters touching her honour. What a scandal. Seward's good news, then, was that he got to learn of Britain's steep demands, but he would not have to face the ticking clock, at least not yet. Seward was urged to discuss the matter with Lincoln, the only other figure who was permitted to know of this ultimatum, and for the two men to agree upon a position, whereupon the official presentation of the ultimatum would take place, and the seven-day deadline would tick by. In many respects, this was just a minor courtesy on Lord Lyons' part, but it did suggest that neither Lyons nor his masters in London wanted to rake America over the coals. A wrong had been committed, this was true, but it was only decent and civilised to give the United States some time to come to her senses and see what was at stake. 
Lyons was prudent enough to recognise that threats would only send America's back against the wall, but he had also been instructed to abstain from anything like menace during the conversation. Lyons' main concern in this approach was that the Americas would interpret British generosity as weakness and would delay their decision to make the whole ultimatum meaningless. To insulate him from such charges, Lord Lyons informed Seward as politely as possible that any attempt to evade their responsibilities or any refusal to surrender the commissioners would not be tolerated. At the same time, as far as the British were concerned, there was an argument to be made for waiting a few more days. After all, French instructions to their ambassadors in Washington, Henri Mercier, had yet to arrive, and this official missive could add additional pressure upon the Americans. The British press did not stay quiet in the meantime, and although US statesmen would not have had a chance to peruse these papers for another few weeks, they still provide a fascinating window into the views then doing the rounds in the public and private spheres. On the 11th of December 1861, the pro-Palmerston Morning Post proclaimed the following. Whatever may be the issue of our demand on the government of the United States, we have at least the satisfaction of knowing that we have done everything to avert war, even by doing everything to prepare for war. Thus we inculcate three leading facts upon them. We are showing that government that we are resolute in our demands. We are showing them that we are not afraid of war and that we are prepared to commence hostilities. These are the only means of effectively supporting just demands against unjust aggressions. The enthusiasm exhibited along the sea coast of the United Kingdom for the redress of our national honour will enable us to commission new ships at a very short notice. It seems quite impossible that the Federal armies could at once continue their campaign with their present antagonists who are already a match for them in the field, and invade our Canadian dominions at the same time. Surely the United States would not entertain the possibility of a war with the British at the same time as battling the Confederacy. That same day, the Liberal MP Henry Brand spoke to his constituents at Lewis, East Sussex, and made it plain that, dangerous or not, the possibility that the United States might instigate a two-front war through its own defiance, should not be ruled out. We hardly met a man who did not put the question, is there to be war with America? Well, who could answer such a question as that? But that question was not to be answered by England, but by America. Of this, he was quite sure, that England regarded with the most friendly feeling the people of the United States. They looked at the civil war between the states themselves as a great calamity. They would look upon a war between England and America as a greater calamity. But the greater calamity of all would be national dishonour. That England could not submit to. Peace was the greatest blessing on the earth, and we ought to make great sacrifices for it. But forbearance has its limits. Peace, though a great blessing, may be bought too dear. Nor was Henry Brand the only individual to speak publicly about the crisis. Before his constituents, at a dinner for the Guildford Agricultural Society in Surrey, the MP William Bovell declared that the Americans would surely see sense, and that Britain should maintain a firm front until she did so. If, however, the acts of Captain Wilkes were not repudiated, we were, fortunately, in a position to vindicate the honour of this country. This, Bovell said, was thanks to the work done in shuttling the required men and material to Canada and to taking the threat seriously. 
What would have been the consequences were we unprepared at this moment? Bovell challenged. In his view, a position of weakness would invite more insults. We should have been obliged to submit to insult, and would that prevent the evils of war? If this outrage was intentional, the inevitable result would have been greater insults until we were forced into war. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This perspective of Bobbles formed a plank of national honour. If the national honour was permitted to suffer, it was believed that opportunistic rivals would swoop in to take advantage. Like sharks circling around their prey, smelling blood in the water... Britain's empire would be mercilessly attacked and torn apart. The only course, therefore, was to fight to wipe away every insult, no matter how seemingly minor it appeared. To fight, or give the impression that you intended to fight, did not necessarily mean that war was inevitable. Yet it was recognised that a position of weakness did make war more likely. As the Times remarked on the 13th of December, This is the language of men who are prepared to lose, if necessary, every son, every farthing, in the maintenance of our national honour. The contest at hand may not occupy a quarter of a century, but it may rage long enough to make every Englishman feel, in one way or another, the horrors of a fratricidal war with men of our own language and race. All this is felt by those who are most concerned to feel it, and yet there is no flinching, but a steady confidence in statesmen who never yet flinched when the national honour was in question. And there could be no doubt that Britain was in earnest. The papers were full of details of military preparations. In Liverpool on the 13th of December, the Morning Post recorded soldiers embarking for their journey to Canada. The men appeared in good health and spirits and were loudly cheered by the crews of vessels close at hand during the time they were going on board the transport. To illustrate the sense that war fever was spreading among the Navy, it was noted that all outgoing ships would communicate a stark message to any British vessels that they encountered. The message being, war with America is probable. 
Those expecting some light weekend reading would have been disappointed. The Saturday Review was awash with details about Britain's military preparations and described eight battalions of infantry, including two of the guards and the first battalion of the famous rifle brigade, ten batteries of artillery with two battalions of the military train and companies of engineers, and the commissariat and hospital corps have either sailed or are held in readiness to sail for what may be the seat of war. More, if need be, will doubtless follow if the reply of the United States to the demand which has by this time arrived in Washington should not be satisfactory. But the preparations went above the military sphere. Britain was also politically united on the necessary course of action to take. Lord Derby's Conservatives were instructed to adhere to the government's official line, and even Derby's subordinate, Benjamin Disraeli, normally contrarian in his own way, recognised that the Prime Minister's political antenna were correct. Palmerston was only behaving how Britons expected him to behave. An insult had been received, and it would have to be paid for either in contrition or blood. We are considering a national business, and in matters of this sort, where the national honour is to be maintained, party subdivisions has ceased to exist, so declared the Ipswich Journal on the 14th of December, adding, At the same time, it should be known that our government had the unanimous support of the people of England in defending the law from violation and our flag from insult. We desire to inflict no disasters on the Americans. We ask simply to have reparation for an outrage, and if this is denied to us, we cease to be neutrals. Let it be known that, where the honour of our flag is concerned, the press of Great Britain no longer represents sections, but is the voice of the country. Perhaps this was an optimistic reading of the situation. Speaking of optimistic reading of the situation, Confederate President Jefferson Davis addressed the rebel states around this time. Normally, Davis's addresses would be received cordially, but without much interest. Yet since the Trent Affair, as the London Review recognised, the situation had drastically changed in Britain. Now that our government has been reluctantly compelled to take measures for the vindication of the insulted honour of the British people, and that among the immediate probabilities of the future, a war with the Federal States of America stands unpleasantly prominent, we are naturally filled with great anxiety to know what sort of ally we may find in the South, should the threatened war arise, what it thinks of its own cause, and of its capacity to maintain and strengthen itself, and what amount of hopeful energy still inspires the hearts of its people and the councils of its statesmen. The London Review judged that Jefferson Davis leaned too heavily into cotton as a weapon, and failed to appreciate the limits of his power even with the Anglo-American crisis in full swing. But still, this was serious news for Lincoln's administration. Union politicians might have expected that the unpalatable issue of slavery would prevent the British and Confederates from seeing eye to eye, but as is clear here, the British were capable of thinking dispassionately about the question. It was plain that slavery could be pragmatically ignored, but it was also regularly stated that Britain would not relish or revel in this unholy alliance. Nor was there much to be gained with a war between two closely connected trading partners, as the Morning Post underlined on the 19th of December. We were, and still are, steadily preparing, though more in sorrow than in anger, for a conflict which nothing but an imperative sense of duty could have induced us to engage. 
A caveat to this reluctant conclusion is that President Lincoln became the subject of scorn and ridicule. A little bit later in its editorial, the Morning Post provided the following acidic judgment of London's troubled presidency and his prospects. Is he possessed of political ability and of moral courage sufficient for the purpose? Has he, in the course of his official career, given any decided proofs either of the one or the other of these qualities? No one who has watched, with an impartial eye, the course of events during the last 12 months can answer these questions in the affirmative. On the contrary, it is pretty evident that President Lincoln is but slenderly endowed with those qualities and accomplishments which are necessary to form great statesmen. He is deficient alike in natural powers and education. It is one of the delusions of the utilitarian age that success in private business fits a man for the conduct of public affairs. President Lincoln had been an energetic and successful man in the various callings in which he had successively engaged, but accident has now carried him beyond his proper sphere. We doubt his power, even if he has the will, to do us justice. We may flinch at how incorrect the Morning Post turned out to be in the end, but to contemporaries in 1861, unaware of the significance of the moment, Lincoln had not been impressive. He had failed to suppress the rebellion or to prevent it from expanding at its early stages, and he had then authorised a strict protectionist policy, which choked the entire Confederacy off from the sea, thus causing the world trade in cotton to stutter to a halt. The market picked up after a time, but Lincoln's prospects certainly appeared gloomy by December 1861, and they would be all the more dismal if the President refused to swallow his pride and give the British what they wanted. A December 1861 issue of Punch depicted a portly John Bull towering over Brother Jonathan, the representation of America. John Bull's meaty finger was pointed at the American, and the caption below read, You do what's right, my son, or I'll blow you out of the water. Back in Washington, though, and on Saturday the 21st of December, Secretary Seward met with Ambassador Lyons once again. This time, Lyons expected to make the official handover of the ultimatum, and for the clock to begin ticking down, but this did not happen. The Secretary requested more time, and Lyons, the gentleman that he was, granted the request. It made little difference to Lyons at this point. Thanks to restrictions imposed by Atlantic Communications, the Ambassador understood that no messages could be sent home to Britain until the 1st of January, when the mail packet set sail from New York. So long as the ultimatum was presented and either expired, was repudiated, or was answered within that time, all would be well. The latest he could conceivably deliver the ultimatum was thus the 23rd of December, if Lyons wished to even have a measure of breathing space to frame events. As a result, he pressured Seward to meet him on that date, and on 10am that morning, the 23rd of December, the ultimatum was officially read out, and the clock officially began to tick. The ball was now in America's court, but how would the Secretary of State react now that it is Christmas was to be dominated by such gloomy matters. Indeed, the same day that Lord Lyons had met with Seward, he wrote of the encounter to Earl Russell back in London. Bearing in mind Russell would not see these comments until the mail packet delivered them along with the American answer, Lyons's position becomes clearer. The British ambassador did not long for an Anglo-American war, 
and seems to have even felt a bit sorry for the American Secretary of State. You will perhaps be surprised to find Mr. Seward on the side of peace, Lyons explained to Earl Russell, but ten months of office have dispelled many of his illusions. He no longer believes in the ease with which the United States could crush rebellion with one hand and chastise Europe with the other. Lyons was optimistic that Seward had learned his lesson and would never again regard relations with England as safe playthings to be used for the amusement of the American people. Seward reportedly told the French ambassador, Mercier, that the crisis would not come to war, and Mercier, for his part, had already advised Seward on the 21st of December that no help could be expected for America from the French, and that the United States must either compromise or face the consequences. Yet Lyons was personally fearful that the French might pull a fast one. He wrote to Russell on the 23rd of December to the effect that the French response could massively complicate matters. Technically, London and Paris were to pursue a common policy towards the United States. I mean, an Anglo-French alliance remained in place, a legacy of the Crimean War, but you wouldn't know it judging from the agonising on all three sides. American statesmen appreciated that an Anglo-American war would effectively grant the French a free hand in Mexico, and a multinational fleet still hovered off the Mexican coast. At the same time, might the French be induced to act differently and throw a spanner in the works for Britain? Perhaps during Britain's distraction, the French would act and seize the Rhineland, a fear deeply ingrained in British statesmen, Palmerston and the Queen particularly. Napoleon III's character also had to be factored in. His fondness for great and sudden coups had become notorious, and it was difficult for the British to base their security upon his character. The idea is prevalent here, claimed an American agent in France at the time, that a war between England and America would occupy the British Navy to such an extent as to enable France to occupy the Rhine, which is the dream of all imperialists. When a troubled seaward presented this idea to Ambassador Mercier, the Frenchman dismissed it as a vulgar notion. Yet until the official French announcement arrived in Washington, all would have to wait. In the meantime, Seward dramatically toned down his previous bravado, which had made Anglo-American relations admittedly fascinating, but certainly had done little to ease tensions since the spring of 1861. Now the Secretary of State was convinced of the need for America to relent, but to control the narrative as they did so. A settlement of neutral rights should accompany the capitulation. This would be a nod to American complaints over Britain's disregard for these rights, which had led to the War of 1812. It would also soften the blow to American pride. Banking and business interests had made it plain to Seward by this point that the proposed loan to the United States would be severely jeopardised if an Anglo-American war followed in 1862. What creditor would risk their monies on a loan to a nation which faced such a ruinous two-front war? Ambassador Lyons came to see these pressures as having a significant effect upon Seward's stance, but Seward took some time to communicate his position to the American government, leaving many of his colleagues adrift and agonising over what was to come. Charles Sumner, the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, engaged intensively with his British contacts, largely consisting of Richard Cobden and John Bright, the two pacifist radical liberals 
who espoused free trade and Anglo-American cooperation. On the 23rd of December, Charles Sumner wrote to John Bright, asking, Does England mean war? And continuing, The impression here is that she does, and two foreign ministers have given today the impression that she does. If this be so, then I must despair. It is said that if the Trent question is adjusted, even on English terms, another pretext will soon be found. Can this be so? All this is to me inexpressibly painful, for I am almost a Quaker in principle. Besides, my sympathies have always been thoroughly English, so much as to expose me to frequent criticism. Thus, on every account, I protest against such a contest, but I fear that it is coming. Now that the ultimatum had been presented in an official capacity, its terms would soon be in the hands of the American press. The New York Times commented positively on the British terms and praised Lord Lyons's delicate and generous style in presenting it. The British had not declared a war in revenge of their hurt pride, and the door was open to further dialogue. Surely this was cause for relief, and it might even ease some of the anxiety then present in the United States. People talk coolly of surrendering the rebel emissaries if it can be done without a sacrifice of honour, the New York Tribune declared on the 20th of December. Lincoln's administration were already working towards a route to such a settlement. They believed they had found it in the tricky device of international arbitration. The tactic was seen by many in the cabinet as a useful compromise, and the course was further recommended by John Bright back in London, who wrote personally to the American president, providing careful instructions therein over how to proceed. Bright wrote, If I were minister or president in your country, I would write the most complete answer the case is capable of, and in a friendly and courteous tone, send it to this country. I would say that if, after this, your view of the case is not accepted, you are ready to refer the matter to any sovereign, or two sovereigns, or governments of Europe, or to any other eligible tribunal, and to abide by their decision, and you will rejoice to join with the leading European governments in amendments and modification of international law in respect to the power of belligerence and the rights of neutrals. But how to grapple with the British demands for compensation, how to ease their high tempers and wounded pride over what had taken place when the American naval officer had boarded a British vessel and seized some of its passengers? Well, John Bright had a strategy for this as well. You would not have authorised such an act against a friendly nation, calculated to rouse hostile feelings against you. You repudiate any infraction of international law. The capture of the commissioners is of no value when set against the loss of that character for justice and courtesy which you have always sustained, and you are willing to abide by the law as declared by impartial arbitration. Any moderate course you may take will meet with great support here in London, and in the English cabinet there are, as I certainly know, some who will gladly accept any fair proposition for fair arrangement from your side. Be courteous and conceding to the last possible degree, now in your time of trial. This was a fair and measured piece of advice from John Bright, but it also led President Lincoln down an incredibly unhelpful rabbit hole, where the American president drew up plans to cast the entire question of neutral justice in the international system into debate and effectively start over with new precedents in international law which could be applied in the event of future outrages at sea. Although we might argue that President Lincoln was well within his rights to question the customs and principles of international law, 
customs and principles which were subject to scrutiny and debate depending on which legal scholar one followed and which theory one adhered to, this strategy was more likely to exasperate the British. Notwithstanding his desire for careful, considerate diplomacy, a 7th of December message to Ambassador Lyons saw Russell make it plain, What we want is a plain yes or a plain no to our very simple demands, and we want that plain yes or no within seven days of the dispatch. Russell had already accounted for American litigiousness in the subject, and this instruction was meant to anticipate it. Now, the British Foreign Minister was saying, was not the moment for settling a new code of international conduct. Instead, now is the moment for the Americans to decide if they wanted peace or if they wanted war with the British Empire. The Americans were certainly close to making that decision, but that is a story for the next episode. So join me then in the last episode of this series, History Friends, where we see exactly how this whole crisis was resolved and how the feared Third Anglo-American War did not come to pass. I assure you, the story is just as fascinating in its conclusion as it had been in its development and peak. So I hope you'll join me for that. But until then, history friends and patrons, thanks so much for supporting this show and for listening to it. Check out Matchlock if you like historical fiction, and I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.